Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to cover the whole chapter today. Go ahead and turn there. Sermon title this morning is Property and People. We're going to look at an interesting text today. and We're going to see a group of people that in times of stress and despair tried to make money off of people who were persecuted and suffering and dealing with famine. And then we're going to look at Nehemiah who was able to help those and alleviate the suffering of those who were going through a famine. So when times are tough, the people of God step up and they take care of each other. And that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's pray again, ask for the Lord's help, and trust that he's going to give it. Lord, we need wisdom, we need direction in all that we say, all that we do. I pray that you would help me to be as faithful as I can to your word. Work perfectly through imperfect preaching. Holy Spirit, just please help. I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you today. I pray that when I get to the gospel near the end of this passage today, I pray that they would be ripe to hear the good news. And I pray they would repent of their sins and trust in you, that they would not live for themselves, but they would live for you and your glory and your honor. And for every believer in here, God, I pray that we'd be convicted in certain areas, that we'd be comforted in other areas, that you would work in the way that you you see fit. Holy Spirit, lead us. And I trust that you're going to do that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So selfish ambition and godly ambition have some um, similarities and they have some big differences. And when you think about the word ambition, it can be very difficult to kind of nail down what godly ambition actually is. Especially when you get into thinking about wanting to do the Lord's will and honor His moral will, not knowing necessarily what His purposes are in the secret realm that He's working in. But His moral will is found in in His commandments, and we want to obey Him and honor Him. But in this area of ambition, it's hard to know um, what we're to do as Christians. Is this about my glory, or is this about the glory of God? Is this about building for my kingdom, or is it building for Christ's kingdom? And sometimes selfish ambition and godly ambition kind of go together. And so you're at one, one moment, you're wanting to do this for the glory of God, and the next moment, you're wanting to, to climb this mountain because it's about you. And that can be a little bit different. Now, selfish ambition really can get a lot of things done. The, the man or woman that's motivated to get stuff done can get a lot of stuff done, no matter who's in the way or what projects are in the way. They can just get it done. And they can move material, they can make money, they can build a kingdom. Selfish ambition can get a lot, a lot done. Now, selfish ambition views people as a product. They use people as, some, as, as, a, uh, as a resource to be able to use or manipulate to get what they want out of them. That's what selfish ambition ends up doing. It uses people to get what the person who's selfishly motivated wants. Getting to the top, getting what they want is the driving force in life. That's, that's selfish ambition. And the selfish, selfishly motivated person can watch suffering people or, or see a situation and think, how can I get profit from this? Because there's always money to be made. There's always money to be made. And there's, there's people that are just really gifted to make money. And everybody else sees an issue. And then there's people that are wired in such a way where they see the issue, but they also see how can I leverage this for profit. And that's not always a bad thing, especially when it's godly ambition. But instead of thinking about how can I make a, make a profit for the glory of God, it, it's a taking advantage of vulnerable people or places and thinking how can I use these people to profit me, 
how can I get them to profit or make my purposes come to fruition? But godly ambition is different. It still gets stuff done. The person who has godly ambition isn't a lazy person just resigning to the will of God, just whatever God wants. The person who has godly ambition gets stuff done, checks boxes on the list, does the weekend project, gets the side hustle, does the things that are required to build for the glory of God. Godly ambition is a really good thing. It's about building, it's about growing, it's about doing, it's about working hard. But the aim of it is for the good of others, not at the expense of others, for the good of others and the glory of God through the advancement and expansion of his kingdom. So there's a different motive between two ambitions. One is I want to use to get. The other is I want to to love, I want to help this group of people with the resources that God has given me. They still want to build, but it's for the glory of God. And so we're going to to watch today, we're going to to see these examples in two groups of people in the book of Nehemiah chapter 5. And we're going to watch selfishly motivated people first, and then we're going to see a repentance within them. It's, it's going to be kind of like a revival in the middle of this chapter. We're going to see them say, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop doing that, and I'm going to live like you're living, Nehemiah. And then we're going to see Nehemiah is the example, and then we're going to look at Christ at the end. So first, we're going to see a situation of despair, and the people of God are in this situation where it's a dire state for everybody, and they're in a really, really bad spot. It's a famine. There's a famine in the land And people are so desperate, we're going to find out that there's three groups of people that are responding in a certain way. And then there's a fourth group of people that's trying to to leverage the despair of this group of people for the good of those who already have much. Okay, so look at verses 1 through 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So here's the setup. In the middle of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, there's a massive famine. It's difficult. When you're working hard, you need water and you need food. I mean, you need to be able to eat. You need to replace those calories. And that's something that's not just for today. They didn't know what caloric intake was back then. or even. But they they knew, I've got to get some food in my belly. And when there's a famine and you're working really hard, these two things provide a a pretty difficult way of life. And so there's three big groups here. There are those who did one thing, those who did another thing, and then those who did a third thing. So it was really, really bad, and the people cried out to Nehemiah for help. And so verse 2, we find the first group of people. It was those who had a large family with their sons and daughters. They're many. They're looking at their household. And so they need to get grain that they may eat and keep alive. This group just simply recognizes that there is a concern for their family members, and they need grain to keep alive. So the complaint is, the complaint is coming to Nehemiah. The outcry to Nehemiah, because there's some Jewish brothers that are doing something wrong to them that's preventing them from getting the food that they need for their family. The second group we find in verse 3. Verse 3. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain because of the famine. So they were concerned with their family as well, but they're in a situation where to get food, they're having to mortgage their fields 
their vineyards, their houses, simply to survive. Now this is important to note, that already, even as they are rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, we, we find private property. This is going to be a point that we're going to make a couple times here today. We find that they actually had in their possession already, they had fields with their names attached to it. They had vineyards with their names attached to it. They had houses with their names attached to it. And they were in such a dire situation where they had to leverage their private property and mortgage out what was theirs to be able to get food for their bellies so they didn't die. So this is a sidebar, but it's an important sidebar because of where we're at right now. Uh, there, there is a big movement, and we know that there's this Marxism thing that people have been talking about. And, and sometimes with words like Marxism, socialism, communism, capitalism, these are, these are things that we can say and, and words that we can use, but we really don't know what's wrong with them. Some of them sound right, some of them sound wrong. We just don't know what the big deal is. And then, and then it's kind of just hard to navigate what's right, what's biblical. The Bible is very clear that private property is a part of what it means to be human. Within the law of God, we have the seventh commandment. And the seventh commandment is, thou shall not what? Steal. Well, steal what? If you're stealing something, the presupposition that's there in the law of God, and the law of God reflects the holiness of God, how God has created things to work in this world. Built within the way God has wired the world to work, Right within his law is private property. That belongs to you, therefore I can't come and steal it. I have possessions that belong to me, I cannot come and steal it. And we see right here, already in Jerusalem, as they're rebuilding the city, they have fields, vineyards, and houses, and they're so dire that they're saying, we've got to do something with this to even eat and survive. And there's other Jewish brothers that are wanting to come and take advantage of their plight. But one of the reasons that Marxism, socialism, and communism are so evil, please hear me say this is so crucial. This is, this is for us in conversations when we're talking to people or we're like watching the news and trying to figure out what's going on in the world and that kind of stuff. What's the big deal about all this stuff? These um, economic ideas or political ideas are at war because they violate basic commands of the law of God. They are against private property. They war against how God has made the world to work, and they try to imagine their own utopia that's a counter-reality. And it's evil to the core. We're going to see more of this in Acts chapter 2 in a little bit. We're going to connect some more dots here. But then the third group we see in verse 4. There are those who had to borrow money and send their children into slavery. Now, in our minds, when we hear about slavery, we hear about, you know, we immediately go to antebellum south, and we immediately think colonial slavery... But slavery is still common around the world, and, and, and slavery has been down through the history of the world the default of human existence. And indentured servanthood um, was a way to pay off debts. It was just a very common practice throughout the whole world. And even within the people of God, when they had debts, they look at their children and they think they can work, and they, those people there need the work, and if I sell my children to them for work, I can do that in exchange for what we need. They will be taken care of, and we will be taken care of. So for the working-age children, they would sell their children into slavery. It's, it's different than what we think of when we think slavery. Different than our culture, certainly today, but that's how it was. They had to borrow money and send their children into slavery. So they exchanged their working-age children for food, sustenance. The situation was really bad. So all those three situations 
you know, paint us a picture of the, of the situation they were in, and it was just bad, okay? It was all happening within the people of God. We're talking about Israel here, okay? Now, Nehemiah responds to the complaint. Look at verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother? And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They were silent and could not find a word to say. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah responds. He's very angry. He's looking at the situation. There are people in dire need. It is a massive distress. It's not just the common experience that we're experiencing today. That, that we're not living in, in any word or any type of distress like they were living in. Nor were we, are we living in any kind of distress like the early church was living in. And so the situation's bad, and there are groups of people who are taking, God's people, taking advantage of the plight of other of God's people. And Nehemiah, in his anger, expresses what he's specifically anger, angry with. Now notice how he takes counsel with himself. Um, there are times, you look at that, you see in, right, right in verse 8, right in verse 7, I took counsel with myself. Uh, he didn't have to gather a group of counselors. There, there is time, there are times um, when men who stand alone are not crazy. Now there are other times when men are standing alone and they are crazy. <laughs> but there's times that very few people see with clarity what's going on. And Nehemiah knew exactly. So he took counsel with himself. He didn't have to go get a, a, a group of counselors. He knew exactly what was going on and exactly what was wrong. And he would speak to it. Now, it reminds me a little bit about the book of Job. Now, Job had, had this situation going on where he loses everything. And then there's a group of friends, the first three, the last four, the, the fourth, Elihu, was, was not condemned by, by God. But the first three and Job's wife, and they do a lot of things right to begin with. They just sit with him. But they begin to speak. And everybody accuses Job of being in the wrong. Even his wife, curse God and die. And Job keeps digging his heels in the ground. Imagine what the brothers or the, the friends could have said, or his wife. Imagine the conversations that aren't recorded, you know, his wife to Job. Job, you're so stubborn. I see this. Your friends see this. Why don't you just repent? It's because of your sin that all this has happened to us. And Job's like, no, I'm sorry. He dug his heels in. He had his face set like flint, and there are times, just like with Nehemiah, where you're going to feel very alone. But just because you're alone doesn't mean you're not right. Now, this does not give you an excuse to dig your heels in on everything and with everyone. But there are times that you see with laser precision, because God's word is so clear, this is right, and I'm not budging no matter what. And Nehemiah knew the anger that was there was justified, and so he counseled with himself dug his heels in, and he knew what he had to do. And we find out who these culprits were. There were nobles and officials within the people of God that were viewing the plight of God's people. They were seeing these three groups, and they were working together and thinking, okay, how can we profit off their pain? And so they saw the distress of Israel as an opportunity to get more and more and more for themselves. Now we have to assume, 
As we find out in a little while that Nehemiah was a man of great wealth. We don't know where his wealth came from, but he had great, great wealth. We know that he was the cupbearer of the king, that he had the support of Artaxerxes. And so he had some financial backing for him. But we have to assume also that these nobles and officials had money. They had the stuff. They, they had what the people needed. And they looked at the situation and they saw the situation and the group of people that were in pain as people to be taken advantage of. And it really angered, really angered Nehemiah. They were supposed to be leading and serving the people, but instead they were using these people for themselves. They were charging interest on the people rather than helping the people. Now we think, well, interest, that's just a standard, that's standard um, way of, of doing business. Um, yes, for the world it is. Interest isn't always wrong. But interest in this situation was wrong and evil when they had the means to help, but instead of helping, they took. They saw the famine as a way to make money, and it enraged Nehemiah. Uh, verse 8, we're fine that uh, Nehemiah corrects them and says, we've been bringing Jewish people out of this, but now... You're doing, you're doing what Babylon, you're doing what Persia did, and now you're doing it amongst our people. You're putting them back into slavery. You're enslaving your own people. And I love their response in 8b, because it's almost as if these nobles and officials didn't know what they were doing. It's almost as if they're like, what, this is normal, what are you talking about? Almost as if. Because we see the response, and we have to say that this is nothing more than the work of God in the midst of the people of God doing a great work for him, uh, God really just takes care of his people. And he brings correction here. And it's almost like a Nathan moment when Nathan and David, when Nathan says, you're the man. And David recognizes, oh my, I'm the man. I am the man who has sinned against God. Look at verse 8b. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. Nehemiah speaks to them, brings correction. They were caught, and they were absolutely speechless. They could say nothing. And I think every one of us have been there before where we realize we've been caught on something. We've done something wrong, and we kind of just, you know, look at the person who caught us, and we realize there's nothing to say. It's like, I have no excuse whatsoever. This is the situation they're in. We have no excuse. They're speechless. They don't have anything to say back to Nehemiah. Like, no, Nehemiah, this is standard. This is not a big deal. We're trying to, yeah, we're doing this, but we're really, we're helping them. See, we're providing food for them. We're not taking their things. We're not, yeah, we're enslaving their children, but we're taking care of their children. We're taking care of them, Nehemiah. They don't even answer back. They don't try to defend themselves. They're absolutely speechless. Nehemiah speaks again. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. This is not good, officials. It's not good, noblemen. Stop doing it. They were not walking in the fear of God. They did not care about God's reputation to the nations. Here's some key takeaways that are important. They should have had concern for the name of God among the nations. They should have, but they didn't. And so they were treating each other as the pagans had been treating them. And Nehemiah is saying, hey, listen, they're going to look at you, and they're not going to see a difference at all in the way that you're living your life. Do you not fear God? Do you not care that his name and his reputation amongst the, amongst the nations is getting defamed? And they didn't. And so Nehemiah said, you, you need to fear God. 
Secondly, the nations should look at the people of God and see a big difference. There's the same famine in the land, but they should see a a big difference between the people of God and the pagans about how they are facing difficulty and adversity. Same famine, and the people of God are acting like the pagans. And Nehemiah's like, That's, that shouldn't happen. You, there should be a marked difference between how you are living, how, how we are living our lives, how we are taking care of each other, and how the pagans are over here living their lives and taking care or taking advantage of each other. There should be a marked difference. So what are they going to do about it? Look at verse 10. I love this. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So Nehemiah comes up with an action plan. Is this going to be repentance, sorrow that leads to repentance? Is this going to be a turning away from the way they were living, or are they going to keep doing what they were doing? And we see that this is real repentance here in a second. So Nehemiah says, you need to lend and don't take. It's as simple as this, lend and don't take. They should lend without interest so that they can get through this famine together. The nobles and the officials should not take the fields The vineyards, the orchards, the houses of hurting people. It belongs to them and they shouldn't be taking it. They shouldn't be taking ownership of it or even leasing it or mortgaging it against them. It belongs to them. Return what you have profited from your generosity. So, from your generosity. Return what you have profited. Give it back to them. Lend to them. Don't take from them. They're hurting. And then they respond. Look at verse 12. Then they said, we will restore things and require nothing from them. We will do what you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out of the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised promised. They responded. This is a true revival. This is the people of God saying, we are doing things wrong and we're going to repent and we're going to walk the other way. We're not going to keep doing what we're doing. And Nehemiah lays it out to them and they simply say, oh, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to do what we're called to do. The nobles and the officials, they promised and then came through with their promise, but that's not all. It doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 14 and 15. We're going to see the example of Nehemiah even further. This is pretty neat. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid out heavy burdens of the people and shook from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver, Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Since Nehemiah was in Jerusalem at the word of King Artaxerxes, and since he was the governor of the land, he had the backing of the Persian Empire to be there, and that means he had a food allowance. He had regular resources coming into him to fuel what he was there to do. 
It was the blessing of the Lord even that Artaxerxes allowed him to continue to stay there and continued to let them do the work. And even though there was a famine in the land, they had plenty of food, plenty of supplies for Nehemiah and his household. Now the former governors of Israel would use that and lord it over the people. And so they would, they would incorrectly and wrongly lord the backing that they had from Persia and instead of using it for the good of the people, they would lord it over them, but not Nehemiah. He feared God. Now, uh, every single leadership book that you can read, um, basically every leadership principle boils down to this. And if you get this one point about leadership, you get leadership. I mean, it's just, and there's like a, a million different repackaged versions of this, but this is Leadership 101, and so there's conferences and all this kind of stuff, but it just all comes down to this. Are you going to use your power for yourself or for the good of the people that you're over? It's as simple as that. Nehemiah did not want to squeeze out of his people everything he could squeeze out of his people. The nobles and the officials were using the people for their purposes, but that's not leadership. That's not what leaders are called to do. They're called to lead for the good of the people. I'm here to serve you to see that you thrive. I'm going to wield my power for your good. I'm not going to demand my power be recognized by you, and I'm not going to use you for my good. That's Leadership 101. Now, that's what all CEOs write about. That's all. It's just, I mean, use your power for the good of the people. Don't use it to make everybody do what you want them to do. That's what tyrants do. It's Leadership 101. So Nehemiah was leading for the good of the people. Now, this is interesting here because um, we're going to connect some dots with the book of Acts, okay? We're going to look at what Nehemiah did, okay? So he, he used his allowance for the good of the people, and then we're going to specifically look at the book of Acts. And I want you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2 because we're going to see a common denominator here with, <clears throat> with the people of God rebuilding the walls and Israel, and we're going to see both were in situations of distress, the people of God in Jerusalem now, years later, about a little over 400 years later. And we're going to see some common themes throughout here. And we're going to, I think, pick up some principles how we should be prepared to live our life in similar distresses if they ever come. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. So the common theme here is distress... And how the people of God are supposed to be living when there is distress, great distress. 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Let's just pause. People of like Marxist, socialist, communists love that verse. Okay, they love verses like that. See, common, all things in common. And because we love the Bible, we love all of the Bible and we love that verse. Absolutely love that verse. But it is not a verse, in context, it is not a verse that defends weird socialist Marxist agendas. And we're going to see why just in verse 45, and then we'll look at quickly at chapter 5. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay. Great distress, 
So much so that Christians are under heavy persecution. Now it's persecution. That's the distress. It's not a famine as it was in Nehemiah. So um, we have to recognize first that these situations are non-normative. They're non-normative situations. These are exceptional situations. And because of the needs of the church, they were so heavy, Christians were voluntarily selling their possessions and belongings so that needs could be met. They were not coerced and they were not being demanded of to give their property or their things to the church. That was not a coercion. It wasn't demanded. It was a voluntary giving and selling of their possessions to meet the needs of the whole. And because the situation was so distressful, and you guys have heard me say this before, if we were in such a distress that there were people in our midst that could not eat, it would be a glorious thing for us to voluntarily sell some of our possessions and to have in common together the things that we need. It would be wrong for any leaders to demand you have to sell your things and those things are not your things anymore and it's not going to be a voluntary giving or selling of your possessions, but it's going to be come, come here and we're going to have this common pool of just no possessions whatsoever. That, that's a violation even of the Ten Commandments. This is a voluntary selling of their own possessions. Even in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, it's interesting in verse 4, it says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Their property, their fields, it, it remained theirs to do with what they wanted to do with it. They were not put to death, Ananias and Sapphira, for not giving their property. It was because they were lying to the Holy Spirit. Their fields remained their fields. And when they sold it, it remained in their own possession. And so when there's distress of the magnitude that they were experiencing in Jerusalem or in the days of Nehemiah, certainly we should all be willing to sell whatever we've got to sell. Yes, I'll sell that field. I don't need it right now. But we have people in our church that are desperate. I'm, I'm watching them waste away. I'm watching their children come to church hungry. And in light of this present distress, we're going to have all things in common. And we're going to take care of each other. Now, here's how twisted it was. They saw this, and here's how twisted it would be of us. If we saw that and saw somebody coming in here in distress and thought, well, how can we make money off this? How low would you have had to have sunk to get to that place? So it was a real issue going on in Nehemiah's day. Where Nehemiah, it just made him angry. And you know what? It should make us angry if we ever got in a place of distress like that and we're unwilling to have all things in common. If we were unwilling to share what God had given us or to sell even something we didn't need to meet the needs of those in our midst, it was theirs. Now, those needs in Nehemiah's day or the needs in the early church, they could not be met unless there was a collective helping of each other. I think now more than ever, Michael Foster has a really good series on all things local we really need, we don't know what's coming down the pipeline for, as, for Christians in this country. or We don't know what the future holds. God does. And I do not want you to walk in fear at all. But it is good. It is a good and wise thing to get to know the people in this room more and more and more. 
to love each other and to hold on to each other and to encourage each other and know that we're here for each other. Disconnected church communities where you kind of just go to church and then you leave, that's, that's not a lot of help when distress comes, when difficulty comes. And if, if we're going to be refined by fire, all of us are in personal sanctification. But as a whole as the church, if persecution is to come to us in our lifetime, then we need to know we have each other's backs. And it could come to the point where we have to sell that vehicle, sell that house, sell that field to take care of one another. And you want a people, you don't want to just be a nominal church attender where you're just kind of going to church here and there. You want to know each other and know that we have family, we have each other's back. And here's the thing, we should really know that we have each other's back here. That we're in this together. We're not going to be using each other. We're going to care for one another. That's what the people of God are called to do. That's what we see them doing in the book of Acts. And that's what we see Nehemiah calling the people in his day to do. Don't exact interest and make money off hurting, starving people. Lend to them. Give out of your plenty. Look at the further works of Nehemiah. Turn back. I want to see that this is how the people of God have functioned in the New Testament and the Old, taking care of one another. Look at verse 16. Tell me if this doesn't fit in right with Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 4. Or really throughout all the New Testament. I also preserved in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all the kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So what did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah worked. He kept working. He worked on the wall. He kept providing an example for the people. Work and work hard. We've talked a lot about that recently. But then he provided food for the people. Every day, out of his abundance. This is why we find out that Nehemiah had so much wealth. Wealth is a, a very good thing. The love of money is not a good thing. But wealth to people who have godly ambition is a very good thing. Because it's used for the right reasons. And nobody should be guilty, feel guilty, for having what God has given you. We know that. Hopefully you know that. But don't use it for selfish ambition. Use it for God's purposes and the advancement of his kingdom. This is what Nehemiah laid down as an example. He prepared at his expense every day one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. In every society around the world, that's a lot of money. An ox a day like an ox is a, a really big animal, real big animal. That's a lot of money at his own expense. So he's not just saying, officials, noblemen, don't use them for your gain. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm showing you the example here. There's wine in abundance. There's meat in abundance. I'm going to, out of my own expense, provide for those who need it. And he challenges them to do the same. And yet for all this, he didn't even demand the backing of Artaxerxes. This is out of, out of my pocket, out of my pocket here, I'm going to take care of the needs around me. And friends, we live in a really glorious state. We don't have the needs like they had. We're not in a famine. Most of us are, are doing pretty good. But let us, not become, um, let us not become so 
let's just make sure that our ambition is godly ambition rather than selfish ambition. Because most likely, in the history of the world, the default has been distress and persecution. And most likely, it's coming for us, if not in our lifetime, uh, in our kids' or grand, grandchildren's lifetime. And we need to be, be prepared to use what God has given us for, for, for godly purposes and not just hoard it for ourselves. We need to take care of our kids, take care of our grandkids. We need to take care of those around us as God gives us opportunities, but not use it for our own glory, for our own purposes. So he prays to God, and he asks God to remember him for all that he had done for his people. And I see these three big things that Nehemiah did, and it really it does point us to Jesus. And I always want to go to Jesus in and throughout the whole sermon. But we see that Nehemiah worked, and he worked hard. He provided food for the people, and he prayed to God, remember me for all that I've done for his people. And I just want to think about what Christ has done, because this little verse at the end, remember me for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. When we look at that, we think about the prayers of Christ. We think about the work of Christ and the provision of Christ. And not just this last verse, but this all these last three verses, really verse 16 down through 19. We see the work of Christ. Christ didn't just work to build a wall. Christ is building his people. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to purchase a bride. He came to build us and to wash us with the water of the word. He came to build us brick after brick, not just with bricks made with stone, but like people. And he's building his church. We're told the gates of hell will not provide or not prevail against it. And this food provision, we see that, that Nehemiah wanted to provide for his people. But what does Jesus do? He provides not just material needs, not just physical needs, but every single spiritual, spiritual need that we have. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1 that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single one of them. He's not withheld one single spiritual blessing from us in the heavenly places. He provides for his people. And he worked. And at his own expense, what did Jesus do? He came to give at his own expense what we so desperately needed. It, it was we who sinned against God. It was us who squandered the blessings that God has given us. It was us who rebelled. Well, us who walked away. Us who suppressed the truth. And what does Jesus come to do? He comes to take responsibility. He comes to bring correction. He comes to provide everything that his people need. Nehemiah really is pointing us to Jesus. And he prays. But he prays not just that his works would be remembered on his behalf. But he's so much better than Nehemiah because he prays. And in his prayers, he is remembered by his father, but so are his people. And his heavenly father, in the prayers of his son, counts us as doing the very work that Christ has done. Nehemiah, just like every other prophet, just like every other leader in all the Old Testament, points us to Jesus. And that's what I really want you to come face to face with this morning. You have needs that you can't provide for yourself. And you have needs that the people in this room can't provide for you. You've sinned against a holy God. And Jesus has come to do the work that you should have done. And he came to die on the cross, to live a life that you should have lived and die the death that you should have died. And he provided for you the one central thing that you need in this life to live beyond this life. You need your sins to be forgiven. You need to be made new. You need to stop living for yourself. And you can't do that on your own. With all the things you could try to do to clean yourself up, you cannot clean yourself up. You can maybe, maybe bring some moral reform to your life, stop addictive habits, those sorts of things. But you cannot, from the inside out, transform yourself. You cannot forgive yourself. You need God, the universe, to, to forgive your sins for you. So this morning, the invitation is come to the one who has truly provided for you, truly prayed for you, truly done the work for you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the examples we see in the Old Testament and the New of the people of God taking care of each other. 
I thank you for the community that you're building here in our midst. I thank you for friendships that are growing. I thank you that your people, beyond church walls even, can take care of each other, love each other. God, I thank you that there's people around the world that are in great distress receiving aid from people here on this side of the world. We want to take care of each other. Jesus, thank you that you're so much better than Nehemiah. I thank you for your work. I thank you for your provision. I thank you for your prayers for your people, your intercession right now at the right hand of, of the Father for us. You're interceding for your people. And so, God, we thank you for that. We want to remember what Christ has done for us. Holy Spirit, bring conviction where we need conviction. Grant repentance for those who have not repented. God, help us. Holy Spirit, I trust you're going to lead. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing.